Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about gender discrimination in the field of economics. Uh, this is something that's come up over the last few months in the field with some very exciting research uh, from people all around the world, actually, and in the American Economics Association uh, annual conference in early January, uh, there was a session on gender discrimination that got a lot of attention, both in and outside of the field. And that panel, that session focused on discrimination as it extends to the life cycle of female economists' career, all the way from initially choosing to study economics, securing a job, searching for a job, writing research papers, gaining access to top publications, the entire life cycle of it. And so to help me talk about some of these issues and maybe even talk about some possible solutions, uh, I'm very excited to have two folks with me, um, Aaron Hengel, who is at the University of Liverpool, and Paul Goldsmith Pinkham, an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Aaron, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank Thanks for having us. Very excited to have you both on the show. I want to start by having maybe each of you just introduce yourselves uh, briefly, and then we can, uh, maybe we'll have Aaron talk about the, the AA session, and then um, we, can, we can dive into some of these, some of these issues and, and the research that you've done. So Aaron, can you just talk a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this research of gender discrimination? And, um, and then Paul, maybe you can talk a little bit about yourself as well. Um, yeah, so, uh, well, actually, I was doing my PhD so I am um, a lecturer in the UK, it's an assistant professor at the University of Liverpool, and um, I finished my PhD uh, a year and a half ago, and it was actually during my PhD where I got interested in this, and before that I was actually um, working in micro theory, but I was teaching an asset pricing course, a class, so it was a classes for the actual course, and I happened to have noticed that if you look at the front row of students when you're giving a lecture, um, and if you really nail an explanation, that front row is going to light up. You can, you can almost see the fact that they understand. Anyway, so that's, if you're giving a lecture, you want that. It's, it's, it's positive. And I had always kind of trained myself to look for that because then I, then I know I'm, I'm explaining something well. And I happened to have been watching somebody else's lecture on a topic that I knew. And um, he was definitely doing a better job than I could have done. But I didn't think he was really nailing the explanations, right? And, but I still saw that front row just really light up. Uh, in a way that they wouldn't do for me, I felt, if I hadn't nailed my explanation. So that just kind of made me think, wow, do I have to be clearer than other people? Um, and so that was when I started, it was just like, huh, I wonder if I could test this. How do I test this? And that's what, what led to the paper. Oh, that's great. That's a great story. Great uh, inspiration for, for why we do research in general, um, and especially on this issue. Um, Paul, can you talk a little bit about your, uh, your background and, and where you are and the work that you do there at the Fed? Yeah. So similarly, my main focus is on consumer finance. So I've been at the New York Fed for almost three years now. And most of my work is in finance and consumer finance and applied econometrics. But sort of um, kind of the anecdote in a similar way to Aaron that led me to this was I am in charge of inviting seminar speakers for uh, my function in research. And one of the things that's sort of notable is trying to think of a group of individuals to, to invite who are sort of salient uh, that individuals, that people in my group are want to invite to bring in. And so I wanted to make sure that we made an effort to try and bring in a, a diverse group of, of speakers, not necessarily just drawing from the same people that I knew every time or that people in my function knew every time. And what sort of 
prompted me to start working on the the thing that I'm working on, which was focusing on um, basically what gender representation looked like at, at an economics conference. So basically, in terms of who the speakers were who were on the on the program, basically what ended up happening was is I went to the MBR, which is the national conference, sort of similar to the American Economic Association, but a, kind of a, a more of a inside club that's held in in Cambridge. It's a sort of a, a National Bureau of Economic Research, which they host an annual conference every year that they people have to submit to. And they had all this data on who got in and who didn't. And I went to the finance sessions, which are the ones that I know, and I sort of looked to see how many women were in the 2016 session. And basically, there was one female author on all of the papers for 2016 in corporate finance, which would be the typical mm-hmm. session we would invite from. And I sort of said, oh, well, that's that's not very many. Is that is that typical? <laughs> one. Of, one right, not that's, very many, right, yeah. right. So I, I guess I asked the question to myself of, oh, is that typical of the MBR? How representative is this compared to something else? And sort of my co-author, Anusha Charya, and I have said this is that one of the things about this, and I think this is true for Aaron trying to do the data version of this as well, is, you know, it's it's very easy anecdotally to have an opinion on this and what does sort of the data say um, in, in the similar vein. So we kind of pulled, this was kind of an exercise in we could scrape a lot of this data from the website and categorize all the individuals who are on these papers. And that's sort of how we got into doing this data exercise of trying to understand what the, um, the gender breakdown was of, of speakers at this conference. Right, right. So I want to turn to Aaron to talk about the AEA session. So can you talk about your paper specifically, and then also maybe a quick sort of overview of the session writ large? Um, you know, was it full? Where there's a lot? I mean, clearly it, it garnered a lot of attention. Um, was it one of those sessions that was was full? Was there a lot of conversation? Was there a lot of discussion? Did you get a lot of pushback? Um, so I'm going to let you just talk a little bit about your paper and then and then about the session uh, as a whole. Okay. Yeah. So I'll I'll just talk about my paper. If you feel free to interrupt me though. Um, but basically, so so it was a session on gender and economics, um, which has gotten increasingly a bit more. Um, attention in economics. And so it was, it was actually really nice that they had this devoted session to it. Um, and it was well attended. Um, now, my paper is, it's called Publishing Well Female. And what it does is basically look at the readability of male and female author papers. So effectively, what I wanted to do was question whether women are held to higher standards. Um, there is actually quite a bit of evidence that already exists that suggests that they in fact are. Um, and a lot of this evidence, what it basically shows is that all things equal, women are considered less competent when they are compared to otherwise um, equally competent men. But I really wanted to look at this um, in the sense of, you know, academia, um, in economics. So in are women's papers then held to higher standards in their writing and academic peer review? Okay. Uh, so the thing is, this has actually been studied um, in the context of acceptance rates. Um, but that is also one of the limitations of some of this prior studies. So they've shown basically that there is no real consistent evidence that women's papers are accepted less often than men's papers. But there is a lot more to peer review than simply looking at just that single indicator, which is acceptance rates. Most papers are accepted only after they've undergone major requested revisions, and this is precisely where I wanted to see if there was a potential gender bias. So I really wanted to see if women are going to have to jump through more hoops 
um, effectively to get published? For example, are they are their referees more scrutinized? They're more heavily the technical details in their criminal author papers, or perhaps they will ask for more robustness checks. Or, and this is what uh, I specifically look at: Do they require clear exposition in their text? Are they like my students? Do they do they only really light up when my explanations are clear? Right. So, if this is the case, then we should expect to see. Um, higher quality um, on whatever dimension it is these higher standards are being applied to. And that is a crux, effectively, of, of what I am doing. Um, now, the reason I chose clarity of exposition, or you know, clarity of text, was uh, for two reasons. Um, it was something that I had actually experienced. Um, but also, uh, it's something that is valued by journals. I think Econometrica states very clearly in their submission guidelines that uh, papers need to be well-written and understand, understood by people outside the field. And second, writing, writing clarity is actually a well-studied topic, and it is effectively a function of simple vocabulary and short sentences. So it's, it's very quantifiable in that sense. Right. And there are a lot of different indicators that exist in order to quantify this particular relationship. And I, I concentrate on five. Um, anyway, so I take these, these five readability measures as my measure of, of um, writing quality. And I attack them the question, are women's papers better um, written? And if so, is that attributed to, to peer review? And if so, is that because of discrimination? I attack that using a multi-step um, identification strategy, effectively. Um, so first, I established that, yes, in, indeed, there is a gender difference in readability after accounting for obvious contractors. Um, I also find that by comparing draft papers to their final published version, so basically what I also do is I take draft versions, NBER draft versions, in fact, and I compare them to the readability in the published version. Um, and I establish effectively that a good portion of that difference is caused precisely while the papers are going, undergoing peer review. So the, um, the readability gap in the draft version of the paper is much smaller than it is in the final version of the paper. And given that NBER papers already, so the, the majority, the vast majority, in fact, of NBER papers are released as working papers are after they've already undergone a significant amount of internal peer review within departments. Um, if you look at Econometrica as submission data, they are generally released as working papers at the exact same time that they're submitted to Econometrica. So assuming that once you submit a paper to the journal where it is eventually uh, published, that you're not going to actually do any changes to that paper while it's under submission unless it's something that's specifically asked for by a referee, then that effectively establishes that if we see a widening readability gap, that it is therefore caused by peer review. So does the fact that they, there's working papers out there um, with people's names attached to them, does it basically negate this idea of blind peer review altogether? Oh, right. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> the paper, um, but uh, I'm going to put it now on the paper. <laughs> Effectively, <laughs> yeah. it's coming soon in a new draft. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah. So it may have worked in the past. All right. Blind peer review may have worked in the past. Yeah. Um, I do actually find that the readability gap between the published papers and the MBER work papers reverses, but that's not statistically different from zero, that, that effect. And the sample of papers is, are subjected to double-blind review before the internet. However, the gap then re-emerges after the internet. Anyway, right, the, the right. sample sizes, however, for these papers are very small because the sample size of papers subjected to double-blind review before the internet is very small. Um, so I hesitate really to make too many policy recommendations based on this finding. However, we now exist with the internet, right? So it's here. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, right. and it's interesting. It's interesting also to think about 
you know, the networks of researchers prior to the internet and, you know, who talked to whom about, you know, papers being, being submitted. Uh, but clearly the internet has made it easier to find, find those names. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the AEA session? And I'll, I'll link to that to the session so people can take a look at the papers. But can you talk not so much about the, the findings of each of the paper, but maybe the overall tone of the session? Uh, well, yeah, it was very um, supportive. It was very unlike a typical economics seminar. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't yeah. know if it was really representative. Um, it, it was not highly critical, that is true. Um, mm-hmm. But it was also relatively, there were a lot of people there. Um, I think it was standing room only. Um, wow. But it was a small room, so I don't want to, you know. No, you do, when you get standing room only, you just you hang your head on that. Yeah, you say standing room only. Yeah. It was a closet, <laughs> standing room only. It definitely felt like, I mean, certainly for the AFA, the finance one that we were a part of, the people who were in the room felt like they were drinking the Kool-Aid, or at least there was, it was, I mean, Aaron, I don't know if you, if this is what you meant, but it, it felt like these are the people who definitely thought this was an issue in economics and sort of were trying to support this kind of research, as opposed to people who are coming in to say, oh, no, this isn't a problem. Yeah, I think that. That may, and that that actually, I mean, that's positive, but it's also negative at the same time. Because if that's the case, then you know, preaching to the choir is is that what right. we need? Right, right. The people's minds you want to change may may not have been there. Yeah. Um, so, Aaron, your paper is about a single journal uh, submissions to Econometrica. Paul, your paper was about the NBER Summer Institute, so a little more of a um, a specific conference and invite only. Can you just talk uh, briefly about what you and your co-author found? Yeah. So my co-author, Anusha Chari, and I, most of what I guess what we did was we were trying to sort of fill a gap in terms of a data collection exercise. So we essentially were using this long panel. This conference has been going on for a long time, but the data that was available that we could sort of scrape from the internet um, was from 2001 to 2016. And essentially what we were trying to do was there's... um, there's a lot of good data that's been done for a long time by this group called uh, CSWEP, which is a, a, a sort of a, a subcommittee of the AEAs that tries to calculate statistics on the share of women um, in economics. But that's really representing uh, the share of women who are faculty members. So it's looking it's surveying departments to try and look at what are the share of faculty members who are women um, and other underrepresented minorities. And what we wanted to do was get a sense of, well, at conferences where we think if we think of conferences as being important, which I think we do for a variety of reasons, um, what sort of does the breakdown of women look like at these conferences, especially a prestigious one like the MBR Summer Institute, which is sort of one of the more prestigious conferences to be able to get into. And the other benefit of it was that we could also look across topics. So typically, you know, not every person has a particular label attached to them. There's potentially stuff that's on their website, but it's not well categorized, consistent across time. And so one of the benefits of this conference is we could see across different types of groups. So this would be, you know, finance versus macro versus applied microeconomics. What is sort of the breakdown of gender representation look like across time and across these fields? And so what we end up showing is that there's there's really been very little change in the representation of women at these conferences. It's been it's gone from about. 19% to about 20% over this 16-year period. And the, there's sort of been this persistent gap across the field. So from finance has roughly been around 12%, whereas applied micro is something more like 25%. And that gap has sort of been persistent across this, this time series. Some of these facts were consistent, I think, with people's priors. And 
some were potentially new facts that people didn't know, but it was is useful exercise to, to sort of not just be thinking about anecdotes, but actually know what the numbers looked like. And then the second thing that we were able to do is we kind of wanted to ask the question of, well, what's driving this difference in representation? What is the benchmark we should be comparing it to? There's this point of, you know, you say, here's what the, the breakdown looks like. Well, what should it necessarily be in terms of, should it, mm. should it necessarily be 50%? It, 50% maybe is an ideal we should be striving towards, but even if if the fact the share of faculty who are women is less than that, then potentially that would not necessarily. But like, the question is, is, what is the right benchmark to be going for? And this is something economists yeah. have pushed us a lot on. Um, but even when we compare this, what's interesting is is that we we look across a variety of benchmarks in terms of what does the share look like in the profession. Um, one of the kind of neat facts that I think really highlights potentially one of the underlying issues with conferences and say something like the MBR Summer Institute is really one of the numbers that the share of women at the MBR tracks the most is one of these things called the, um, the share of women who are MBR affiliates. So there are these things called, uh, you can be a research associate, which basically means you're affiliated with the MBR, or you can be a a faculty research fellow, which essentially means that you're part of the institution. It's kind of like being a member of um, this research organization and that's something you have to be nominated for and voted on. And that number tracks quite well. The share of women who were MBR members versus MBR at the MBR session, those move in the time series quite hand in hand relative to, and much more so than the other um, reflections of female representation in the field. So this sort of, it's suggestive yeah. that, you know, it's about being part of the club or at least knowing about it. You can't established causality uh, either way, but it's suggestive that it's consistent. And then the last thing we do is we look at applications. So we got the MBR to work with us and we were able to look at people who submitted papers to the conference and look at whether or not there were differences in acceptance rates. And what we find is it's pretty similar acceptance rates across men and women, uh, except for maybe some slight differences in finance for women being accepted less. But for micro and macro, it looks almost identical which to us suggested that potentially part of the reason why we would see an underrepresentation of women here is more about information or the sort of the the willingness of women to submit um, to these conferences rather than some inherent bias that there are men or somebody else who's sitting at the at the gate saying you know more men can get in than women, but rather something else about uh, potentially women submitting, which I think. I don't want to speak for your paper, Aaron, but it's consistent with this idea that there's some sort of self-reinforcing bias, potentially not encouraging women to submit enough, for example, or there not being enough information. So one of the things that always comes up when you have these discussions about gender discrimination or any sort of discrimination in, especially in academic fields, is about the pipeline, people moving from undergraduate to graduate to the profession. Aaron, I think we were talking earlier about these different blockages in these points. And Paul, you brought up this, what's the right goal or what's the right middle point? So what is that middle point? What should the ratio be either in publishing or in the profession? The numbers sort of shrink and shrink and shrink as you get, the balance sort of gets further and further off as you get further into the higher levels of the profession. So Aaron, maybe you could talk a little bit about these, the, the real imbalance between the share of women who are academic economists versus the share of women who are publishing in some of these top journals. There's been a lot of uh, people pointing out that women are underrepresented in economics. So um, I think it's, uh, as far as PhD students are concerned, it's about a third. Um, I think full professors, it goes down to about 15%. 
And uh, between that are assistant and associate professors. So between those two, which is obviously less than 50, 50%. Um, right. And full professors, you know, 15% is quite small. I would, however, mention that 15% is, in fact, the upper bound on women's rep- representation in actual top journals. So um, the average ratio of female authors per paper um, is about 12.5%. If you look at now there are 18.8% of papers published since 1990 that have at least one female author. But because a lot of these papers are in fact like, you know, one female author two and two men, the actual ratio or average ratio is much smaller. Um, and in fact, the, the profession does not do, or at least they don't, they don't publish very many um, solo authored female papers or papers that are 100% authored by women. Um, so in fact, in, in, in 2015, the average ratio of female authors per paper barely broke 15%. So this is, it's barely broke um, the percentage of women as full professors. Um, and only 7.5% of papers were majority female authored and just 4.5% of papers uh, were written entirely by women. So you can see um, as you go down towards higher representation of women on individual papers, you have fewer and fewer papers as a percentage of the total, which um, are female authored. Uh, So that it really, given also other research that has shown that women don't get much credit unless they're co-authoring with other women or they're solo authoring, the solution from from that was that, okay, well, that's fine. Let's let's go, um, you know, women should therefore co-author with other women or they should solo author paper. But those are such a tiny fraction of the actual papers that are published in any of these top journals that clearly it's not really a viable option. Yeah, it's also adding this other barrier to publish a paper is like, oh, you have to go find, you know, you have to go find not just someone who's good at the good at their job, but also someone who, you know, meets this gender criteria as opposed to just finding someone who's good. You're adding this this additional barrier. Women should get credit for co-authoring. Right. <laughs> That's obviously right. Right, right. But, but um, yeah, so, I mean, the solution, however, it may not be just as simple as, as just finding another. Right. Another. I mean, I think that you're bringing it up, and I think it's a thing that I have struggled with of how to convince people who are potentially skeptical or trying to talk about this. And I think this, the things that Aaron brought up are the right ways to convince it is that how do you say what the right number should be? So I've had someone say, this is a very economist way of saying it, but... And Aaron, I don't know if this is, but somebody basically saying like, well, maybe this sorting is just a taste-based sorting, right? If, you know, if, if women just are less likely to enjoy being economists or something else, and that's just sort of reflecting preferences. And it's like, this is a very hard hurdle for, if people are saying this is reflecting the world as based off of people's preferences, why are you trying to make it 50%? And so... This is always the question of like, what is the right benchmark that we that should be? Assumes doing? preferences are totally exogenous. Right, exactly. Somehow... Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's a good argument, but I yeah, I totally agree. It's saying like, why yeah. are we assuming it's? And moreover, it, it's also assuming that there aren't all these barriers that are making it so that this is one of the things I like about your paper and is this idea that you know there's this information, this self-reinforcing mechanism too that makes it harder or less likely for potentially women to continue or pursue for certain reasons because we've created all these blockages or difficulties to publish or to continue in academia and so forth. If you make it that much harder, sort of ex ante, it would make a lot of sense that potentially there would be you know, an under-representation because it really wouldn't be worth the trouble necessarily given how much harder it's going to be for women versus men. Um, yeah, I, I sometimes think I must have been the, the stupidest economist all the time. Why did I go into micro theory, which has so very few female economists? 
<laughs> right. I, I mean, I like, well, you could have gone into finance where there was where where Paul found one person. So well, no, I think micro theory might be well, might be just as bad. There aren't any micro theory in at the MBR Summer Institute. This is why I said applied right, micro because right. Aaron. Right. This is like I'm yeah. sure Aaron's experience is even worse than than finance sometimes. So what are some of the things that we can do? There's different levels of things that we can do, both you know, as individuals, as conference organizers, as session organizers, as uh, university uh, or, or department chairs or university organizations. So what are the sort of things that you've both talked about and thought about and written about that are things that can try to address some of these imbalances so, in publishing or in hiring? Yeah. Either yeah. Yeah, hiring is the one that I think a lot of people, especially we just finished the job market season and everyone has been worrying about or struggling with. I guess I can speak a little bit to Anusha Chari, my co-author, and I have talked a lot about at the conference level. And maybe this is a useful opportunity to sort of speak as a, a, a guy or a man on this, is that I do think that there's quite a bit that male economists should be making more of an effort to sort of speak on this. I recently got asked to go to a conference and I was suggesting some speakers and there was somebody who got put on a panel. And the reason I'm bringing this story up is that basically a a friend of mine who's a man really did, I think, exactly what more guys need to do or more male economists need to do in this setting, which is he was asked to be on a panel. It was a panel of potentially sort of four men on a topic where there's plenty of women who are good on this. And to say, you know, he was like, look, I'm not going to be on a panel where it's all men. It's like his words were something like it's 2018 where like, this is not acceptable to do this. Like we really need to diversify the speakers who are at, at this conference. And he put his foot down a little bit on this. And, and, you know, I, I don't love conflict and it's not something I would enjoy doing, but the organizer wasn't doing explicitly was a, was very reasonable about it. And they ended up fixing sort of making sure to get this person on, like get that some, the person who he recommended on and so forth. And, so I guess what I mean by this is that that's, that's an example of, for example, like a conference panel. That's a very specific example. But yeah. there's an extent to which I think that the, the trade-off is, and I'm curious if Aaron, coming from the perspective of a female economist, because I've talked to some colleagues who have um, different views on this, is that there's a line in which you want to walk of trying to encourage making sure that we improve sort of the share of women and other underrepresented minorities at these conferences. At the same time, you not do it with the attitude of I'm trying to sort of give handouts to people. So at the same time, I don't think any person wants to be told that they're getting to be the sort of the token woman on the on the panel or anything else right. or token person on the conference. And so I think there what's useful about it is, and this is maybe a very econ-y way of doing it, is what you want to do is ensure you have processes in place for the submission or solicitation process in place to encourage a large number of potential candidates initially, such that you don't have to enforce a quota ex post, but rather you've done the work ex ante that if you get a random shock, such that you get a bad draw, like maybe no women or very few women on the conference or panel ex post, you can at least say like, we have this process in place, usually it does a very good job. So then the I think the, the people who are on the conference who are, say, women or underrepresented minorities don't feel like they're being sort of catered to or beholden to it. Now, that I'm not being, I'm being kind of vague, because I don't think I have, I think it's solicitation and encouragement of submission. So when you do call for papers, there are ways to encourage a broader scope of who submits and how to encourage people to submit. Um, I think conference organizers, for example, can make a point of soliciting um, submissions from people. They don't have to say, I'm going to put your paper on, but they can make an effort to reach out to a larger group of individuals. Uh, that would be, I think, a very good start. And it's very 
I think, relatively low cost, to be totally frank. It's just that right. organizers have to do the work. Aaron, I don't know if that you, it's like personal experience or if you have thoughts on that. I think it's important. I, I have been, solic- I mean, not a lot, but a couple times I've been, solic- you know, people have asked me and um, there they were things I didn't know about. Um, so I didn't, I didn't know to apply um, and uh, I was happy to do it. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, if, if you don't have a lot of women, I think the onus should really be on the organizers to try to figure out who might be a good presenter in certain situations and try to reach out to them. I think that they would, they will have a lot of success if they do that. Because I, I, anytime I've been solicited, which isn't a huge amount of time, it's, in fact, it's, it's very small, but I've always said yes. So Right. Yeah. I think that's right. Well, I mean, it's interesting. The conference side does seem to be sort of a low-hanging fruit because it doesn't all come from conferences, obviously, but there's an obviously, there's a pipeline or there's a there's a mechanism whereby you presented a panel, you make connections, you make networks, you improve the paper, the paper gets submitted to potentially even a better journal. Um, you know, all of that sort of snowballs and maybe the conferences are, Paul, as you mentioned, it's an easy, low-cost way to sort of help along this process. But there's also barriers, as we all know, there's barriers, there's choke points in all these other areas. But I wanted to actually ask Paul, do you worry about backlash? Well, I, the reason I asked you about the backlash part was there was a period in which I was feeling, I don't know what the word is. I was sort of, I think I had the same sentiment of you of like trying to encourage I don't know, like being more open on these things. And I asked, I think, people online about the idea of signing your reviews. And I got a lot of pushback on the idea. It's a pretty insider group set of people is that you can really piss off a lot of people and people that can be kind of like hold grudges or be vindictive. You might not know otherwise. Uh, And maybe people you wouldn't expect. And I, you know, it's, you be. I feel like I'm a relatively laid back person, and I'm still surprised that I hold grudges <laughs> about things that I feel like I was slighted on. And maybe you know, it's a very, <laughs> it's a surprisingly personal no, field. I guess it's, yeah, it's surprisingly personal. I guess is the thing that I've taken away from it. And this is consistent with why I think conferences are important or these other opportunities. Like it's great. Like for example, I got to meet Erin in person because I was presenting on these things, and so did she introduced herself at the AAs, and now I've. So it's like a, the sort of thing where conferences clearly are important, but at the same time, like it's a very, once you've met a person in person, it you want to keep things professional, but at the same time, you spend so much time with these people that it, it feels more personal than professional at times. I think it is a real concern when you start going down the journalist. So there may be a thicker pool of referees at the very top. Mm-hmm. Um, at least if you're looking at the numbers, okay? Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe only a very small fraction of them actually are able to referee them. But at least at the numbers, there are a lot. Yeah. Um, so there are two possibilities, right? So maybe you could, we, could put, we could push more of the onus onto the, onto the editor and say, okay, well, the editor is then responsible for not sending. So if there is a particularly vindictive senior, yeah. then he shouldn't send it to a junior people. Right. Um, whose publication career depends on that. Right. Or alternatively, we change how we actually look at the referee process. Instead, So as a referee, instead of writing, you know, you write a report that basically says, these are the changes I think need to be made yeah. in the paper. And this may be naive. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, this is just a suggestion. Um, these are changes I think this paper would have to make in order for it to be published in this particular journal. But leaving any more information like on the actual decision out and then right. leaving it up to the, the editor. Got it. Well, so 
there are journals like JASA, for example, and I even have a paper with my advisor, which was sort of, it was a special case and this is why it was like this, but there are journals where what they do is they have the paper and then the response is published and then there's a rebuttal. And those are actually, I think, some of the greatest papers to read because you get to see the context of how the paper was published at the time of the publication rather than the sort of ex post digestion. So one of the most famous examples is sort of Ken Arrow's paper about health insurance, right? About moral hazard. It's cool because you see sort of it's a much more of a conversation there. And I always thought that that would be a wonderful thing if we had at least a little bit more of that in econ journals. I I don't know if it's a feasible thing for what we do, but these aspects of having the the response and a rejoinder published is a really a nice aspect of it. And you also think like then then the person who is actually writing the response gets credit for some of those ideas. Yeah. Like I know in, in actual referral reports that I've gotten, I think, oh, that's a really good idea. I should do that. And then I just copy my referee's ideas and he gets zero credit. For right, right, right. Except for a thank you to my right, thank you, referee. right, thank you to my anonymous referee. <laughs> Who knows my name? Because like you said, Aaron, the blind review is not, it's not blind anymore. Because you can do, you can do a Google search and everybody's posting, even if it's not an NBER working paper, they're posting their own working paper on their own department website. Well, so, okay. So I, one aspect, and this is maybe more societal as well, but it's related to your concern, Aaron, has to do with this aspect of, do people act differently when they're anonymous? And the answer is almost certainly yes. Right. And it's sort of related to Alice Wu's paper about econ job market rumors, which is this aspect to which, you know, do we worry or think about the norms in which we engage in research and we engage as a profession are different when things are anonymous? And I, I take the point that you're proposing, Aaron, as being about you know, maybe the aspect of the anonymity now hurts us more than um, helps us. I mean, it's a trade-off, right? I think we think there, there are presumably our costs of not being anonymous anymore, but maybe the benefits outweigh the costs. And that's related to Alice's point is, you know, there's this reflection here of when you see this anonymous, you get kind of the worst aspects of what people act like online. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going to Alice's paper. Um, yeah, that's the, that's a forum. Um, so econ, econ Job Rumors, which is basically um, where economists go and gossip. And... Uh, <laughs> A lot of people have, have said, you know, it is a forum that is to some extent representative also of our field because almost everybody at some point has been on that site and almost everybody at some point has posted something on that site. Um, so I think, yeah, and, and, and some of those exchanges are very negative and they really can hurt the person's career. Now, if you're doing something dodgy, of course, maybe that, that deserves to happen. I don't know. But the point is, at least there's the added incentive from the anonymity um, of the person making the claims that yeah makes it also possible that, that the comments that they are making are not actually valid. And that they, in fact, are doing that to their own career or perhaps because of vindictiveness or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's a obviously a complex topic. It's something I, I'm hoping that we'll see a lot more research about. Paul, you mentioned the CSWEP group, the Committee for <laughs> Science and Women in the Economics uh, Profession. Not quite. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's not quite right. It's always, I never quite right. Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Profession. Yeah. Status. Right. So we always have those sessions, but I feel like the research on the actual discrimination or imbalance about uh, women in 
the field of economics, it's more of an introspective research strain is going to grow over time. And I think that's only good to have these discussions. So um, we've talked for a while. Let me just start because this is something I got yelled at about. So I will say this as a mea culpa and then I'll let you finish. I'm sorry, is that what there has been actually quite a bit of good research on this topic. I will say that what has happened now is I think there is more demand on the part of economists to read this. I had a lot of comments, which was a useful feedback. And I take it, I'm taking it to heart, which is that there has been quite a number of good papers um, that have sort of been talking and trying to think about this, but they just haven't been publishing as well, or they're potentially not as much interest. And now I think there's a lot more. So sorry, I'll let you finish finish your thought. I had actually had an economist say to me not too long ago, um, there's no evidence of gender discrimination. And I was like, what? <laughs> well, but, but yeah, he was he was obviously thinking of, in, the, in the sense that um, I don't think there is a lot of evidence of gender discrimination coming specifically from the economics field. But there is a lot of evidence more generally. And there is still evidence and definitely in economics as well. But it's not, it's not huge. It's not, it's not published as frequently. People start, especially in economics, start realizing that there is in fact a lot of research out there. Um, and, and like Paul said, they, they read it. Yeah, well, I will, um, I'll, I'll post a bunch of those papers. We'll, uh, find them first, um, and, uh, and post a bunch of those papers to, to the show notes so people can take a look. And in all fields, I think it's important to have that introspection and in this time and, and in 2018 now where, uh, this is happening in, in lots of different fields, this is, this is a, a time to have more of these conversations. So, um, Aaron, Paul, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. This has been a really interesting conversation. Conversation. I don't think we solved anything, um, but we have some good ideas. So um, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you very much. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode. Uh, feel free to chime in on the show notes or on Twitter. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 